Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Allwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're going to be posing you the question, is horror dangerous? But before we get to all that scary stuff, what is going on? Well, there was a hell of a lot more scary stuff that just went on uh, the last weekend, or at least in the near future at the time this episode's going out. Yes, through the wonders of editing, this is Scott from the distant future jumping back in time to insert some thanks after the weekend with good friends that has just passed. This, of course, was the latest incarnation of the virtual gaming convention organised by our wonderful listeners and hosted on our Discord server. I'd like to take this opportunity to say thank you to a bunch of people, for a start, thank you to everyone who came along to the convention. There were so many games on offer, I think we ended up with over 120 in the end. So thank you to everyone who volunteered to run games. The reports I heard of what was on offer sounded absolutely excellent. And as ever, the frustrating thing was not getting to play them all. And thank you to everyone I played with. I ran six games over the weekend and played with some old friends, some new ones, and had a marvellous time all round. But the biggest thanks, of course, go to the people who made the convention happen. These are the convention organisers, Chris, Martin, Benzer and Jack, who did a lot of the technical work behind the scenes to actually make this happen. Not just the technical work, but the organisation setting up the safety tools and just basically turning this into a well-oiled, smooth-running machine. And thank you also to the convention staff, Rena, Dave, Sue and Max in particular, who answered user tickets quickly and just made sure everyone knew what they were doing and sorted out game allocations and whatever little headaches came up. None of this would have happened without you folks, so thank you very much to all of you. I don't know whether there are any plans for another weekend with good friends in the near future, but if there are, then keep an ear out to the podcast and we'll let you know here, or we will shout it all over social media. But for the time being, thank you again for a wonderful weekend. So, Scott, you were in another game on uh, the How We Roll podcast recently, playing Root, I believe. Yes, this was a real surprise. For people who haven't heard of the Root RPG, it's based on a board game that came out a little while back and is about cute, furry, woodland critters who are in a state of perpetual war with each other in this horrendous clash of these oppressive cultures and it's a, a surprisingly weird and dark game and the rpg even more so because it's done as a picaresque so the characters are all kind of rogues and pirates and thieves and troublemakers wandering through the midst of this series of tensions basically causing chaos and stealing everything that's not nailed down and it's great Adrian Tchaikovsky wrote a scenario for it, and he invited Paul Cornell and Liz Miles, who's one of the writers for Big Finish, to come and join Joe and myself. And we played, I think it was about a half dozen sessions in the end. The first few should be out on the How We Roll feed at this stage. And it was absolute glorious chaos, blood, fire, theft, and all sorts of villainy. I had so much fun with this. I was not expecting it to be anything like this, and it's glorious. I was going to say, when you initially said Root, I was expecting what, you've been playing a board game on, on another podcast. Yeah, that might be a bit trickier. I mean, they, they did it with Tabletop, wasn't it? The Will Wheaton thing that was done a few years back online. Yeah, but that had video. It's mm -hmm. a bit different if it's a podcast. Everything I watch is video anyway, so... <laughs> well, because you're watching it. Exactly. <laughs> Although I've all listened to it. And speaking of appearances on podcasts, Paul, you were on the Frankenstein's RPG podcast again. Yes, 
They've invited me back onto season two, where they're talking about the Frankenstein's science fiction role-playing game. So in this, he gets guests on, and each guest nominates a game that typifies a certain element of role-playing. So it might be combat systems or um, social mechanics. But this time, it was about GM advice and the best scenario. So I think there were five of us on the panel, and uh, we each put forth our nominations and then voted on it. Warning, may contain Space Master. That's all I'm going to say. <sighs> Fucking hell, Paul. Now there's a deep cut. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've even seen a copy of Space Master for like 40 years. Oh, well, open your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even a game I've heard of. Oh, really? It's another world. You know Rollmaster? I know, I know that one. Yeah, Death by Table. Like that, but in space. God, more tables. In space. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and also coming up in December, we have issue 10 of the Blasphemous Tome fanzine, the fanzine we make for all our wonderful patron backers. Yeah, we'll have our regular year-end features in there. So you've got the return of the Ludomancers, where we desperately rack our brains to think of what new games we've played in the last 12 months. Uh, we'll have a little bit on Cocktail Corner, so more uh, alcoholic goodness to fuel your game table exploits. And we are going to be looking at our favourite episodes from the year. Or maybe not our favourite episodes, but looking back on an episode that particularly inspires us or maybe frustrates us or whatever it is but something that stands out to us from the previous year's recording and each of us is going to look at a particular episode and talk about it in more depth and now on to our main topic is horror dangerous horror is often at the center of moral panics he has been accused of corrupting public morals, endangering children, or even being a risk to public health. Why is this? What makes people afraid of horror as a genre? And what can we learn from it? Some of what we'll talk about in this episode may be a callback to some of our previous episodes, like The Appeal of Horror in episode 66. That was a long time ago now. And Extreme Subjects in Gaming, more recently but still a long time ago, episode 97. We'll talk about a number of moral panics about horror throughout this episode. Our cultural touchstones are largely British and American. Go figure. If you know of any examples from any other countries, though, we'd love to hear about them, because we like having our eyes open to even more terrors out there. Yes, yeah, as ever, I mean, you can get in touch with us through a variety of social media, but uh, Twitter and Discord are probably your best bets. Now, when you ask the question, why are people afraid of horror? I think, you know, some people might say, well, are people afraid of horror? And I would put forward the Odeon, the cinema chain, mm -hmm. who hold an event, or at least pre-COVID they held an event, I don't know if they still do it, called Screen Unseen, where they'd put forward a film, for, it was five pounds, you could go and see it, you wouldn't know what you were going to see. You'd just know it was going to be like maybe a couple of hours long, could be anything. It wasn't out yet. It was a film that was, you know, going to be released in the next few months. So it was a kind of promotional vehicle for that film, perhaps. Could be anything, but it couldn't be a horror film. That was the exception. For me, my horror would be going and it's like a musical. <laughs> but, you know, that musicals, they're fine, apparently. You know, that's allowed. But horror films... That was the only thing you were guaranteed it wouldn't be. And I like, why? I mean, on the plus side, they did a, an alternative thing rather than Screen Unseen. It was called Scream Unseen, which is kind of catchy. I did go along to a couple and they were shit. But <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> I'm with you when you say about if, if it would be horrific if a musical turned up because I can't stand musicals. I'm making a joke there, but it does make the point that horror is seen as a separate thing, and that is manifest in that policy, I think. So why is that? I think there's two factors at play there. One is just a matter of personal preference. And yeah, there are a lot of people who just decide for whatever reason they don't like horror. And for, I'd say, often quite good reasons sometimes, because if it genuinely scares them in an unfun way, then of course they're going to avoid it. And I think that's perfectly understandable. On the other hand, 
there has always been a current through the genre, as long as it's been an identifiable genre, and possibly before, of people who see it as being somehow dangerous to society, see it as being something that should not only be avoided on a personal basis, but something that needs to be suppressed for the public good. And that's a very different thing, I'd say. So why do they feel, or why do some people feel it should be suppressed for the public good? I mean, presumably they feel that it is a, yeah, as we've said, a threat in some way to culture, to the public, to people, to that people might copy it and commit crime. You know, there's all sorts of different ways this manifests, but in some way they object to it strongly enough that they don't just think that they don't want to watch it, perhaps. They think that you and I shouldn't be watching it either. Now, I was trying to get my head around what some of the different reasons were, and I had to look through all sorts of books trying to find good classifications for this or good summaries of it. And there was one I stumbled across which isn't technically about moral panics or the censorship of horror, but really identified what I thought were a lot of the main objections to horror very nicely. And this is a book that came out last year, 2021, from a Danish academic called Matthias Klaassen. And it's called A Very Nervous Person's Guide to Horror Films. It's pitched at people who are afraid to watch horror films for whatever reason, but might want to. And mm. are sort of trying to overcome their own fears of horror films or address them and build up to actually being able to enjoy horror as a genre, maybe because they've got a partner or kids or whoever who actually like horror and they want to be able to watch horror as a social activity or just because they want to overcome some personal fear. So what Klassen does is he breaks down these different strands of objection that have come about over the years to horror and addresses them one by one, sort of saying, yes, this is a reason why people are afraid of the genre of horror, but here's why you probably shouldn't be. And it's a great book. It's a, a very simple, light book. It's only about, well, it's a couple of hundred pages long, but like 50 pages of those in notes and footnotes. And so you can probably read it in a couple of hours. And if you're interested in getting your head around this topic, I really do recommend it. Mm. There was a nice quote that I came across when mainly looking at uh, something we'll touch later on in the episode about the kind of reaction to or fears about Gothic literature and Gothic horror that there was a distinction made between terror, which was seen as something that was more psychological or something was disturbing, but horror was something physical, something that had a lot more immediate and visceral reaction. The thing that immediately pops to mind for me is jump scares, because that is the thing that literally makes you kind of jump out of your seat. And that kind of, <laughs> in, unfortunately, very much a curse upon modern horror films, much to my dismay. Klassen actually does devote an entire chapter to jump scares in the book and the psychology and physiology of them. We're on the same wavelength. I much think that it's definitely looking at maybe the more moral outrage would be towards that more physical reaction that it provokes, whereas you can have plenty of films which are psychological and disturbing, but they don't seem to get anywhere near as much of the, the hate that main horror, in inverted commas, gets. I think that's a fair point, but a lot of times people don't necessarily make that distinction. And I think the differentiation between those types of horror is a pretty muddy one anyway. Um, there's plenty of horror that mixes those elements up. Stephen King in Danse Macabre had a similar distinction there, which he also talked about horror and terror in very much in those terms, and then also talked about the third category of the gross out, mm -hmm. going for disgust as a reaction. The point is that horror mixes and matches those elements all the time. You, you'll very rarely find a film or a book or any form of horror entertainment that is purely one of those. Mm -hmm. That's true. I think I would tend to go veer towards more the terror angle myself as being my preference. But yeah, it was, it was just nice to come across that distinction that it was looking at it in not yeah. quite pigeonholed, but at least trying to make a distinction between various elements. So when we consider why are people afraid of horror, we boiled it down to a few key points here. Let's just take a look at these. So the first of them, 
that it causes or exacerbates mental illness or psychological trauma. Now, I don't feel qualified to even speak on that, to be honest. Yeah. Do anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's more a question of how this is a fear that horror is capable of driving people mad or at least is capable of inflicting real trauma. And in that book that I mentioned, he does talk about psychological studies surrounding this. The point that he makes is that there is no data that this ever happens. People do get scared by horror films and may have nightmares afterwards. And yeah, there are going to be some images and ideas from horror that stick with you. And this is perhaps related to some aspects of our evolution where we learn to identify threats and internalize those and horror feeds into that and those parts of our brain pick up on threats and th that we see in films and treat those as real. Obviously, if someone is prone to psychosis because of some illness, then yes, I mean, there may be elements and ideas from horror films that feed into that, but psychosis can build up delusions from absolutely anything. I, I remember having this discussion with an old girlfriend of mine who was a psychiatric nurse years back, and she was talking about the sometimes dangerous delusions of some of her patients. And the ones who tended to be really violent, the ones who'd, who'd done horrible things, more often than not were actually driven to it by religious delusions. I don't think any of them had ever seen a horror film and thought, oh, I'm going to replicate that. But a number of them had read the Old Testament and picked up little bits and pieces from that and thought, you know, I've got to go out and punish the sinners. So... Yeah, you might get someone whose delusional systems are reinforced by something they see or read in horror, but that doesn't mean that horror did it to them any more than reading the Bible drove them mad. There's a few instances I can think of, uh, kind of drawing on personal experience, really, which I, I won't go into too much depth because I'm just not comfortable talking about it. But there have been certain moments where I've seen things either on TV or they come up in conversation or whatever and it will reduce me to a blubbing wreck that it really is like being hit by a freight train when certain stuff comes back to mind and I think those kind of I hate to use the word trigger but those moments that mm. provoke that reaction are probably more likely to come up in this particular genre because it's something that is a, kind of intrinsic to seeing people and characters in those kind of states but the risk is you put that into a piece of media, the person that watches it could then have that same reaction if it's there in the same boat as the, the characters that they're watching. So that's yeah. probably where, to a certain degree, this is coming from. But those triggers, I found, can be in any genre. They're not just necessarily hmm. restricted just to horror. It's just that I think it maybe gets a bit more flack because that's where they probably appear more often. This question of exacerbating mental illness or not necessarily exacerbating it but facilitating or demonstrating things to people that they might do and planting ideas i think is kind of sadly reflected in the news this week of a, a young girl who killed herself and at the moment there's a lot of reflection on how that was exacerbated by her participation in social media hmm. and that the images that she saw there had a very ne negative impact on her. And I was listening to a, I want to say psychologist, a medical professional talking on the radio about the evidence that he had seen. And he said he looked through her social media accounts and he wasn't able to sleep properly for weeks. And his conclusion was that this would have had a very negative effect on her. And yeah, this is a different thing. This is, you know, people putting up images of self-harm and so on, but it's mm. still a... One could argue that's a form of horror. It's very different to the kind of horror films that, that we might talk about, but it's still a very visceral horror. And I think for some people, for us three, I mean, Matt's just said how these things can affect him, but I think for us three, generally, we're watching horror films. We know they're horror films. In our heads, it's not real life. And even if it 
perhaps were real life. It's, it, we don't feel it's going to have that, that negative impact on us. But I was talking to a friend recently and I was kind of surprised when I talked to him about horror films and that because I was I was distinguishing between scenes of real life horror and the impact they might have on me and scenes of horror in films and how I distinguish between the two. But he was very much saying that there wasn't really much difference for him. And that emotionally, hmm. when watching a horror film, it, it you know, I put forward this point that, you know, it's two very different things in my head. I get very immersed in the film and I get totally into the film. I don't sort of stand back as an observer. But at the same time, part of me knows it's just a film and I can enjoy it. Even if it's like the most horrible things in, in some films, I still kind of, part of me still kind of, you know, enjoys it in some aspect. But he perceived it very differently. And I, th I found that very interesting. So I think whatever you might feel about the impact of these films on you, you're not everyone. Some people take these things on very differently. But I think we're talking about two subtly different things there. One is the ability of horror to cause psychological damage just in itself. And I think what Matt was talking about earlier with it providing triggers is probably closer that it's drawing upon things that have traumatized people already and triggering those. And I think this is why you get websites now, for example, that have got content warnings for all sorts of films. So people who do have trauma that might be triggered by watching a horror film or any film can check ahead of time and see whether a beloved pet dies or something like that in the film and whether that's going to upset them or whether there's going to be you know, sexual violence in the film or something that they're just not going to be able to cope with watching. I think that's a very good and healthy thing. I also think it's quite a different thing from the idea that you'd be traumatised by just watching that in the first place. I mean, yes. Two comments there. Yes, I would agree. I think, again, like I said at the outset of this segment, I don't feel qualified to really... Hmm. Any comment I make here is just my supposition. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think certainly if you've got some kind of trauma or something in your makeup that is going to make you more susceptible to these things, then yeah, I think it's definitely, you know, there's more scope for it building on that. The second thing on a kind of a lighter note, as a horror fan, when I see all those warnings, the more warnings there are, the more I think this sounds great, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably terrible given what I just said. But, you know, just from a personal level, when it's a horror film, yeah. I want to know that it's going to have some uh, content warnings. You wanted to transgress. Just touching on that, when all those warnings come up, Matt and Scott, are there any things in those warnings that make you think, oh, I'm not going to watch this? Yeah. The one thing that I will avoid in all media at the moment, and this has stopped me from watching a number of horror films, and happily I've been warned about this ahead of time, is uh, depictions of dementia. Hmm. My mother died of Alzheimer's. I had a hellish time dealing with her illness and the progression of yeah. it in the aftermath. And watching depictions of that in media or reading about it stir up such strong feelings in me that I cannot cope. Yeah, that's very understandable. Yeah. So that's a good use of those warnings, isn't it? Oh, exactly. I mean, this is why I'm a big fan of content warnings. Yeah. Because I'm sure we've all got these little landmines in our heads that the wrong thing will just set off to some degree. Matt, you, do you feel the same? I mean, there are certain, you don't have to say what they are, but I mean, are there things that... Yeah, there are certain things, definitely. The biggest one for me, though, is one that they don't generally put as a warning at the front of a showing on TV. Right. Because normally it'll have things like, oh, this can say uh, scenes of a violent or bloody nature or of a sexual nature, etc. There's no warnings about harm to plushes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's, not in my case, not the thing that really hits. But yeah, it's, it's just one of those things that comes up that you won't see as a main warning. I have to either hear about stuff from other people or find references to them online. Do you want to say what it is or you'd rather not? I don't want to press you. If you don't want to, that's perfectly fine. It's animal cruelty. Okay. That's quite understandable. Yeah. I'm kind of with you on that. This is where I find the difference between 
real life yeah and films because in real life i'm going to be i think very affected by that and i've seen things on some social media which features animal cruelty and i've put in complaints about it and, and things like that I've reported videos and so on if it's on a film i'm not talking like cannibal holocaust i'm talking like mm -hmm. a modern film where no animals have been harmed in the making of this show then i'm kind of okay with it again i can kind of compartmentalize that I mean, I guess if it was really unpleasant, then, you know, I'm not going to enjoy it. But on the whole, if I know it's actually not animals being hurt, that's very different for me. That's just me, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I'm not saying that that, that should be the same for you. I'm, that's just my take. Yeah, I mean, that's the big thing for me in general, that I'm happy watching almost anything being faked on the screen mm. in terms of blood, guts, gore cruelty horror whatever but as soon as there's any reality behind it that becomes a whole different thing and you mentioned cannibal holocaust there which unfortunately i have seen and really wish i could unsee and the animal cruelty in that really really upset me now i am incredibly against any form of film censorship there will always be exceptions, things that make me deeply uncomfortable, but when it comes to horror in particular, I feel like really anything should go as long as it's properly certified and as long as people are aware of what they're, they're getting into. But on the other hand, something like Cannibal Holocaust, where they tortured real animals on screen, that I would quite happily see those scenes cut out because I don't see any excuse for that being in a film. But I mean, I think that's talking two very different things there, aren't we? We're talking about, mm. to me, very different things. Real life harm and films. Mm -hmm. So there can be the most horrific things that happen to people in films. And, you know, when the director shouts cut, they get up and it's all just, yeah. you know, fake blood and they haven't had their arms cut off. They haven't had their eyes gouged out. They're perfectly fine, mm -hmm. you know, and they probably go to the canteen and have a big laugh and uh, I hope, and they have fun. Whereas any portrayal of real violence, well, that's like a totally different thing. I don't think we can even talk about those in the same light. And I, I totally agree with you, Scott, you know, anything that involved animal cruelty or, or cruelty to people or, you know, because sometimes you see things online where they're being filmed and somebody's being cruel to somebody else and it's being put forward as a joke or something like that. It's mm. something, well, I don't really like that. It's not funny. And indeed that may be harmful. But the problem comes when they're conflated or at least when one is mistaken for the other. So there was a lot of fuss in the 1980s during the Video Nasties scandal about the existence, supposedly, of real snuff movies and the fact that some of these films that were around featured real death and dismemberment, which was absolute nonsense. And if you watch any of the films that have been accused of this, they very obviously weren't. Ironically, one of them was Cannibal Holocaust, where they claimed that some of the actors were killed during the making of it as well. And if you look at the film, you know, very obviously they weren't. It's special effects. Effects. But there was another film that came out around that time called Snuff, which again played on the idea that it was a real snuff movie. And again, I mean, you know, looking at people's guts being ripped out, yes, all right, those are animal guts that are being pulled out. But the skin, I mean, I know latex when I see it. That wasn't helped in that particular example by the fact that even in the marketing, they said they had to film it in South America <laughs> where life is cheap. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty terrible. I wonder what the marketing campaign in South American countries, they had to film it in Bletchley where life is cheap. <laughs> oh, that's the real horror. <laughs> Our second point here, presenting a physical danger such as dying from fright. You know, people were afraid that the other people, I think, I think it's almost always, it's not me that's going to die from fright. I'm fine. You know, I'm an intellectual. I know that all this is very silly. But uh, some people with uh, weaker minds and more frail beings, they might just die from fright. I mean, is there anybody who's ever died from fright? I mean, I don't know. 
the existence just of the idea of dying of fright is is pretty controversial. Again, yeah, I'll refer you back to that Classen book where he talks about some historical examples of people who may have been frightened into some kind of anxiety disorder that raised their stress levels to the point where they couldn't eat and it caused physical problems and, and ultimately death. So he talks about that, I think, in the context of old beliefs about curses. Mm. So you could make an argument that that happens. And certainly there have been people who've died of heart attacks while watching horror films, but whether or not they would have died of a heart attack at the same time, even if the horror film hadn't been on, that's a whole different story. I, mean, I always think back to that story from the 1970s, the guy who died of a heart attack laughing at an episode of The Goodies. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Sorry, I really, she really shouldn't laugh. But it's just, I don't know, that's just very strange. Okay. Also, that it's the goodies. I know. But apparently, yes, he did die laughing at an episode of the goodies. That is literally a Monty Python sketch, you know, the it world's deadliest yeah. joke. You know, you can only read yeah. half of it. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, you'd keel over. But the point is, I don't think anyone after that called for the goodies to be banned or comedy as a genre to be suppressed because it was dangerous. But if he'd had the same reaction watching I Spit on Your Grave or something like that, mm, mm. well, maybe not laughing at that, but if he'd been shocked to death by the castration scene in I Spit on Your Grave or something like that, then mm. that would have led to a, a very tangible moral panic. The only other instance I could think of maybe of dying from fright, aside from the aforementioned heart attack, although kind of tied into that, would be, A, you'd have to have some underlying cardiological problem anyway. But there was the gag that I think it was William Castle used in showings of one of his films, The yes. Tingler, I think it was, mm. that the seats were electrified. That at certain points in the film, the audience in the theatre would indeed get an electric shock. Yeah. Which is kind of, think about it, where the hell is health and safety in this? <laughs> there was another one of his films, I can't remember which one it was, where he offered uh, $1,000 insurance certificates from Lloyds of London to each audience member that would pay out if you died of fright while watching the film. Brilliant. And obviously this was great advertising. Mm. No one was ever going to do that, but it made it sound like the film was so scary it might kill you. And that was great marketing. Yeah. The other thing that this puts me in mind of, not in terms of such extreme, but people reportedly fainting or running out in terror from the cinema. And I think this is no offence, Americans, but I think this is probably a more an American trait than British because British people just tend to sit there and, you know, hum or, uh, you know, <laughs> go tut, you know. Whereas American audiences, I think, to their credit, are more, you know, more demonstrative. Engaged. Yeah, more engaged and more... Uh, able to kind of get up and express themselves which i think is great because uh, i'd like to be in screenings like that sometimes but yeah i i love the idea that people are fainting or so horrified they they run out or throw up or something in the movie it's just wasn't it the exorcist that they were quite famous yeah. for doing that in? yeah yeah it was, yeah. I mean, The Exorcist was a real watershed moment in terms of that, in terms of the fear of what horror films could do, because there were reports of people fainting, vomiting. There was some story that went around about a woman having a miscarriage because of the sheer terror that she saw while watching it at the cinema. People supposedly needing psychiatric care after watching it and a number of them going off uh, to to their spiritual advisors or priests or whoever to try to get right after seeing it, which is kind of ironic as it was written by a Catholic and it's a very Catholic film. But um, but yeah, The Exorcist was, was a huge cultural phenomenon in that respect. I remember my mother, this would have been back in 73 when it came out. I mean, I was aware of the film. I didn't see it at the time because I would have been what, eight when it came out. But I remember her sniffly announcing to her friends at some stage that she would never attend a dinner party with someone who has seen The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah because it was just so far beyond the pale that association with that film was enough to contaminate you socially. 
the fact yeah. that they suddenly have a deeper version to pea soup makes you a worse person. <laughs> what you said, Scott, yeah, it, I was looking at moral outrages and the history of them and so on. I found an article in Psychology Today because, uh, you know, that's how clever I am. <laughs> Uh, called Moral Outrage, Why We Attack Each Other. And uh, I thought this paragraph was interesting. It says, uh, as cognitive anthropologist Pascal Boyer, who I'm sure we're all familiar with, puts it in Minds Make Societies, he says, people who agree with you signal that they are ready to follow your cause. You know, thinking of that lady. By contrast, those who ask for evidence or debate the plausibility of your claims signal that any solidarity with you would be conditional, which is, of course, not what we want in our allies. So I think it's a very tribal thing, mm. isn't it, that my tribe says these are bad. Do you agree? Yes or no? Because if you don't agree, I'm not with you and you're not with me. We all agree on this thing. It should be banned. And I think that's that's a just mm. a very human reaction. I think that that is what... And I think... I think we're all fairly left-wing. I wasn't born left-wing. At some point, I decided I'd be left-wing. I'm not even sure it, was a, it wasn't like a, a decision that I made. But there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that. And there's a mm. lot of things that, as somebody on the left, can you question them? Not publicly, because the rest mm. of the left are going to point at you and say, you're not one of us. I'm sure it's the same on the right, though, you know. That's a whole can of worms. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, the, the left are like terrible for this, but yeah. the right seem more flexible in uh, you know embracing anybody on the right, whereas the left just just divide. But like you say, that's a whole other can of worms. But yeah, the whole censorship thing. You know, when when the moral panic happens, whether it be you know, and on our next point, why are people afraid of horror? Because it causes moral corruption, especially from a religious perspective. So if you're in that tribe that religious group and they're saying this thing is bad or even if you're just agreeing with them already and then you know this thing comes along well you're kind of bound to agree because that's part of what your tribe is saying and you don't want to split from them mm, yeah but i think it's interesting that the fear of horror can come from all sorts of political directions. Yeah, it's largely associated with right-wing politics, and it's largely associated with religion, uh, particularly fundamentalist religion. And yeah, there's good reason for that. That's where a lot of the fear has come from. But at the same time, it does sometimes come from more liberal sources. One of the classics there is uh, Frederick Vertum, who wrote Seduction of the Innocent, the book that led to the introduction of the Comics Code in the US in the 1950s, who attacked horror comics and crime comics there as being sources of moral corruption that were affecting the nation's youth. And he was not a conservative. We've mentioned him a couple of times on the podcast before. He keeps coming up in odd contexts. He was the psychiatrist who was called upon by Albert Fish's uh, defense to try to prove that Fish was insane. And he also was involved with Conan fandom and used to write articles for Robert E. Howard fanzines in the 70s. That's quite a CV he's got. Interesting character. Defended Albert Fish. <laughs> <laughs> Wrote for Conan. Brilliant. But yeah, he was this German psychiatrist, a psychologist, I think psychiatrist, who had gone over to the US, who was, I think, fairly politically liberal and was very interested in trying to address the social problems that he saw as happening in the US. But like so many moral crusaders, he made the mistake of, well, I think in his case, it was a mistake rather than it just being the easy option. But he went for a scapegoat in this case comics. And I think we see that over and over again, that moral crusaders, particularly ones who are trying to build up political or religious followings, fucking love scapegoats. And at the same time, people who have been through trauma, um, people who've perhaps lost children to murder or suicide, as we may come to later, very much want to find something to blame for that, something easy mm. to blame. And blaming comics or films or whatever is a really easy way of doing that. 
this is also the big touchstone that comes to me thinking of the religious angle. Is It's got to be the satanic panic. Mm. That very much comes from a religious standpoint. The satanic panic is an interesting one, though, because looking at it from the history of horror, it didn't necessarily impact horror as a genre that much. The satanic panic was directed at all sorts of targets, like Dungeons and Dragons. That was a big one. Mm. But not generally at horror RPGs, I guess because Dungeons and Dragons was the brand name that everyone knew. Mm. And so you had people burning D&D books, you had the pressure group bothered about Dungeons and Dragons, blaming D&D for child suicides, and... At the same time, I don't think anyone even had any idea about, say, Call of Cthulhu, which was around at the same time, and certainly never blamed it for anything just because it wasn't on their radar. Yeah. There was one particular horror RPG that got the brunt of the satanic panic wave in Sweden, particularly that was Cult. There was a murder that took place in a uh, small, I think it was a rural Swedish community. And basically the media just latched onto the fact that, oh yeah, these two kids that murdered another kid, their common denominator between all three of them was they played this game. And you had organisations like uh, Leave It's Ord, the uh, translates the word of life, that was a Christian group that were very firmly anti-RPGs in Sweden in the 90s. And they claimed all th- all sorts of things. They said it led to Satanism, sacrificial rites and suicide. Chick would have been proud of them with, uh, mm. oh, no, not Blackleaf. <laughs> but uh, that they said there were things were like warning signs of this included them wearing dark clothing, listening to metal music, because it's obviously meant teenagers had no care about Christianity and would be disrespectful towards their parents. And even going to such crazy extremes that they believe that, oh, one of the things that will happen is they'll pick up these rule books and see all these detailed sections on combat. We're going to have an army of role players uh, gonna rise up and then take over the country <laughs> and uh, do this kind of military coup. That's plausible. <laughs> I think it was a book called The Army of the Abandoned, where two, um, in inverted commas, experts gave this uh, view of RPGs. There's a fantastic write-up of this on a uh, very cult-related blog called uh, Razors Through Flesh, which uh, I'll have to remember <laughs> to send Scott a link wow. to in the show notes because it's got a fascinating read on that. But yeah, there's just this crazy shit uh, the guy who wrote on the blog was saying about the kind of the reactions that these groups had in Sweden it was just what the fuck were they smoking? I mean, that's the thing about these moral panics, which is that they are very rarely rooted in reality. There may be triggering incidents or some root of the fear, mm. but it, it certainly spirals out of any sense of proportion and people I, I guess you know this isn't unique to this situation but people will search for any corroborating evidence or just outright invent evidence we saw this during the video nasty scandal where uh, a lot of the fears were based supposedly on the psychological study that turned out to be completely fabricated, or at least not completely fabricated, but the results were changed and edited to the extent where they were completely meaningless. For example, they were asking kids what banned films they'd seen. And there was a, a follow-up study that went back and, and replicated this, and they <laughs> basically introduced a whole load of made-up film titles and got the kids to say which ones they'd seen. And they were all talking in great detail about these made-up films and how bloody they were and how scary they were. There were elements of that, and then they just completely mashed up the the numbers as well to make it look like something like, I, I can't remember what the figure was, it was something like 60% of six to eight-year-olds had seen a video nasty. I remember from the same documentary, it's 40% where they just extrapolated right. it from such a small sample and then went, yeah, this is happening everywhere. And then the next scene when you have the group uh, talking about, so have you seen this hospital horror film? Oh, yeah, it was real scary. Well, tell us about it then. <laughs> what, what specifically do you remember about it? Uh, yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of blood. Uh, it was really, really violent. Uh, yeah, I can't really say much about it, really. And you could tell it's kind of their, their kind of facade of being, oh, I'm the big hard boy who's seen this really scary film is suddenly crumbling because I've got no evidence to back up my claim. 
You mentioned that documentary in passing there. We should credit which one that Mm -hmm. is. And I'll put a link in the show notes because it's on YouTube. But it's a documentary by Jake West from 2010 called Video Nasties, Moral Panic, Censorship and Videotape. And it's about an hour and a quarter. And it's a great summary of all the nonsense that went on at that time. My biggest takeaway from that whole documentary is because they don't admittedly or didn't Maybe I just didn't notice it because the initial people they get to bookend the documentary, the people they get to talk about the whole context of what was happening and then intersperse their experience all the way through the documentary. It was like, oh, what kind of impact did these video nasties have on people? And they turn out to be some of the best horror directors of the last <laughs> <Yes>. 10 years. <laughs> At least in my opinion, anyway. Yeah. So why are people afraid of horror? Because it damages the fabric of society. Yeah. This is a big one. Burn that fucking portrait of Mary Whitehouse that you've got hanging on your wall that you bow to when you make that statement. God. <laughs> she was very much the face of the movement in the, what, the sort of eight, well, very much the 80s, wasn't she, in Britain? Yeah. Well, in the 70s as well, yeah. Right, I was going to say the 70s, but I wasn't sure when she started. No, she was. Well, I think she started even before then. Of kind of moral panics and censorship. She was the, uh, what's, what's it called, the, the cover girl. She was the voice of the National Viewers and Listeners Association, which was a yes. pressure group for censorship of uh, television, radio, films, etc. And she was the organiser of the Festival of Light, which was this sort of religious movement to try to bring God back into British culture and British media. The audience probably doesn't get this point, but I'm just sitting here rolling my eyes in contempt. <laughs> But yeah, she was a great driver of the crackdown on horror in the 70s and 80s. And uh, yeah, <laughs> anyway. But this whole idea of horror damaging the fabric of society fascinates me because it seems to boil down to the idea that people will see things in horror films they'll see things well in violent films in general and imitate them that they'll be driven to acts of depravity and violence by by the things they watch and whenever you dig down to it there's something unpleasantly classist about the whole thing. The people making these pronouncements tend to be very middle-class journalists and academics and people who work in the judiciary who are worried about, you know, those people. What'll happen if they're exposed to this? And I, I always think back to the Lady Chatterley obscenity trial where the judge famously talked about, is this a book you would want your wife or servant to read? And it, you know, it feels like that sometimes with this condemnation of what horror will do to society, that it's sort of the servile classes, the working classes, you know, the uneducated. I Sure, I, I mean, I've been to university. I understand these things. I can look at horror critically. But those people, they're just animals, aren't they? So, to play devil's advocate, what if no school shootings were ever televised or talked about in any media, you know, since Columbine onwards? And there were school shootings before that, but has the the media reporting of them, which is perfectly fair enough, has the media reporting perhaps actually encouraged or has it in some way led to an increase in the school shootings. I mean, I've no idea, but I kind of feel maybe it has. Yo, absolutely. But I'd say that's a very different thing for one important reason. Where you've got news coverage like that, for whatever reason, it's maybe not deliberately, but it does sort of glamorize school shootings, or at least it mm. makes them exciting, it makes them sexy. I don't think that's the intent, but the fact that for a long time they were happier talking about perpetrators than victims and almost sure. treating the kill counts like high scores. There was an element of that. And I think with horror, one thing that we haven't really touched on yet is the fact that most horror, I'd say, is surprisingly conservative, moralistic. Yes, you see 
a lot of violence and so on, but you tend to see it from the perspective of the victims. Where you're building up empathy, I'm not saying this is always the case, but generally in a horror film, where you're building empathy with characters, they're people who are on the receiving end of the horrors. But if you're watching news coverage of a school shooting and they're talking about the shooters, then you're, to some extent or another, making some connection with them in a way that you might in a slasher film to some extent, but I don't think as much. Mm. <laughs> You've not convinced me, I have to say. I would say that there's plenty of horror films that kind of glorify violence and make it, you know... Yeah, have you seen the the gruesome scenes in this film? People talk about it, you know, like playing up the gore and so on. That's part of how they sell it, you know, that if you come to this film, we're going to pay you $1,000, you know, if life insurance and so on that we've already <laughs> talked about. It's this thing of, you know, these films are so dangerous and they're so, you know, gory and so, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to watch it because it's so terrifying or, 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 you know, gross or whatever. And I think that is part of the appeal they're sold on. I'd argue that action movies are a lot more dangerous on that front then, because they do glamorize violence perhaps much more than horror and make it seem, I guess, more harmless or certainly more morally defensible. In horror films, violence is generally portrayed, as the name suggests, as horrific. I mean, not always, but you know, sometimes it's cathartic. But in action films, it's almost always cathartic that violence is a resolution and you don't necessarily see the emotional consequences and fallout from it the way that you do in horror. So if you're looking at what's going to inspire people, what's going to be imitable, I, I'd say focus on action films more than horror. There's an argument that could have dovetails into this that you get the same kind of thing said about video game violence that kids mm. are going to go and play games like gta and suddenly they're all going to be out there imitating this in the schoolyard but there's a fantastic quote from a, uh, a youtuber that i watch quite a lot of his videos because he's got more youtube videos out there than i've had hot dinners called simon whistler who says in quite a few of his videos yeah people i've run over or gunned down in gta hundreds maybe thousands people i've killed in real life zero Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Video games came under the microscope a bit later. Mm. And I think there's this cycle that we see over and over again that whenever horror not enters a new medium, but becomes popular within a new medium, that's when the panics start. So you mentioned Gothic literature earlier, and I mean, there were moral panics about, first of all, Gothic literature in the early 18th century or what, late 18th century. More towards the first wave, so kind of in its run-up to when it reached its height in the, uh, the 1790s. All right. One of the main... Well, one of the famous backlashes that was given was in uh, 1800, which was by William Wordsworth in his preface to the Lyrical Ballads, where he believed that Gothic was a lowly art, sensational debased productions detrimental to the taste and moral morality of readers, which I found was incredibly amusingly ironic, given that his works also included their own touchstones of Gothic fiction, such as the supernatural ghosts and, and so forth. So it's almost <laughs> like, I can do this, but these degenerates can't. Well, that's the classist aspect I was mentioning before, I think, as well, perhaps. Yeah. Certainly there was a big part of that as well, which came about a few years later with the Penny Dreadfuls in Victorian London, mm -hmm. which again had the same kind of moral panic. And they became big in the 1840s. And by the time the 1880s came around, there were talks of trying to ban them or suppress them mm -hmm. because, again, the working classes were reading these and there was the idea that they'd be driven to acts of degeneracy by exposure to them. This is all cyclical because we found that all these various academics and critics and researchers that have gone back and look over the Gothic movement in particular have found that it comes in cycles that almost are directly correlated to points of social or political upheaval. Mm. Uh, but the first wave of Gothic fiction coming to its height in the 1790s is riding on the coattails of the French Revolution. Yeah, okay. And it's presenting these 
elements in fiction, like uh, gothic works included perverse sexual acts, the kind of weird, dangerous acts of sexuality, incest, rape, necrophilia, same-sex relations, because, wow, that was so uh, taboo back then. Mm. And it was the what's been termed or coined the female gothic was critiqued very much as being a, or presenting critiques of patriarchal society. Uh, using elements of violence and predatory sexuality against women. They basically said, no, the men in all these circumstances are bad. This is oppression. This is terrible. And the likes of Wordsworth, maybe not him directly, but others that followed in his same kind of school of critique, were saying that this made explicit what was previously restrained and very much off screen in fiction up until that point, that these could be considered threats against the status quo and against society. And that's where a lot of their condemnation came from. It keeps repeating when these waves of big social political change occur, such as in the, the later in the 19th century. And again, then you could argue that it happened again in the 80s. Yeah. And this happened as horror films became popular the first time in the 1930s. I don't think it led quite to the introduction of the Hayes Act in the US. That was coincidentally around the same time. But in the UK, there was a fascinating thing, which I remember reading about this years back, and I had to go back and check it again before doing this. That there was the introduction of a new certificate by the BBFC, which was the British Board of Film Censors back then, in 1932, where they introduced the H certificate. And the H certificate was explicitly for horror films. The H stood for horror. So prior to then, in 1912, they'd introduced these two certificates, U, which was universal, anyone could go and see it, and A, adult, you had to be 16 in order to go and see it. And so in 1932, they changed that and they split it into three certificates. A changed to anyone under 12 had to have a parent or guardian with them. Mm. But over that, you were fine seeing it. But H was like the hard stop. If if you were under 16, you're not getting into this. And this was explicitly brought in in reaction to things like the James Whale Frankenstein and the Todd Browning Dracula, these universal horror films coming out of the US, which were seen as being so dangerous that children had to be protected from them. I was actually watching a documentary before we came to uh, record today just offhand flicking through youtube and found one about the uh i think it's called flesh and blood the evolution of hammer horror they were saying about how when they came to remake those old 30s films in the late 50s and the early 60s uh, with their takes on frankenstein and dracula that you had the critical response as being again condemnation saying oh this is horrible this is horrific blah, blah. but then what do you as the punter who's going out there potentially to watch these films look at the critical response or the fact the cues for these films went lining up around the block oh yeah yeah there is sometimes a inverse correlation between the critical response and the popularity of a horror film that the more critics condemn it for being depraved the more people want to see it mm-hmm. Well, it was like tracks that got banned, you know, in the top 40. If there was a track that got banned, it was guaranteed to be popular, right? Because <laughs> everybody would want to get their hands on it. And I think as a horror fan, if there was no censorship, it would take some of the excitement out of it. The fact that something back in the day was an X certificate and now an 18, I mean, we're kind of 18 is quite a long time ago now, but when you were like <laughs> a teenager, getting to see an 18 certificate film was pretty damned exciting. <laughs> And getting to see one that, you know, was banned and you know, managed to get a copy of it and see it, well, that's even more exciting. <laughs> so uh, I think if we didn't have censorship, the horror fandom would be almost robbed in a kind of ironic way of some of the uh, excitement. Or at least condemnation more than censorship, but yeah. I've got a classic personal example of exactly what you're speaking about there, that back when I was uh, in school, there was a series that was run on Channel 4 that was looking at previously banned films that finally were being allowed to show on TV. Mm. And I remember two of them, one I saw, but one I only heard their advertisement for it and what they what they had to cut to make it permissible viewing on TV. was apparent. One of them was Bad Lieutenant, which I've still not seen. Mm. But the other one was uh, Zombie Flesh Eaters, which I believe was oh, uh, yes. a called Zombie 2 in the US kind of riding on the back end of uh, a not-quite-sequel or next-in-series to the likes of Dawn of the Dead and so on. But there's a particular scene in that where you have a 
a lady who's being grabbed, zombie based, a hand comes through a door, wood splinters are thrust out, and the zombie, not being malicious, but just being what a zombie does, is dragging the person towards them. And there's this big wooden shard which is directly coming up against her eye, so the camera starts to zoom in on it, it keeps on coming, it keeps on coming. Yes. And then in the, the version that I saw on TV, which again, I was very much of, oh, these got banned mystique films, I've, I want to watch one of these and see what, see what all the fuss is about. Mm. They had to cut at the point where you could see the wooden splinter kind of brush up against the surface of the eye and then they cut to the next scene and Mm. it wasn't until years later when i finally saw the unedited uh cut where i thought what the hell was their hang-up about this which was so obviously a dummy what the hell yeah it looks completely different as it cuts back for the piercing (laughs) completely different yeah but that's faulty but you touched upon i think just to wrap this up what is the ultimate form of panic about horror which is someone think of the children (laughs) this is going to damage young minds now paul is the only one of us who's got kids do you have an opinion on this it's all very well for me or matt to sort of say oh you know if we had kids we'd be quite happy with watching anything well is that true which personally i i wouldn't say but i'm just saying for argument's sake but out of the three of us you're the one who's had to give thought to this sure i mean i am appalled when i see some of the comments online particularly of people who are talking about watching i can't bring to mind what films but certain films with their kids i'm like Mm. you're watching those with your kids for two reasons i mean one is that i don't think it's a good thing for young children to be watching the second is I don't think they're old enough to really appreciate it. You know, I think there's a lot of films, put horror to one side, I think there's a lot of films you can watch too young and not really, it's not designed for a young audience. They're not, it, a lot of it's going to go over their head and it's not going to have the same impact that it would if they watched it when they're, say, hmm. in their teenage or, or adulthood. But in terms of horror, I certainly watched what my children were exposed to very carefully. I would vet films and i mean probably when they got to teenage we watched some stuff that i thought was fine that other parents might not have done but certainly when they're younger i think they're very children can be very impressionable Hmm. and very traumatized by things i don't think it had any damage but certainly in terms of not being able to sleep with the light off doctor who you know christopher eccleston some of those early christopher eccleston episodes that was a nightmare because, uh, yeah, that, that just had a, a lasting impact. Until one day, I think we were watching some of the old Tom Baker episodes and Emily was watching, I think it was one with, is it the Zygons when they're in like the big rubber suits? Yeah. And she's like, that man's got a rubber suit on. And I'm like, no, this is heresy. What are you saying? <laughs> it could have been worse. It could have been the Ark in Space where they're complaining about the bubble wrap. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah but after that she was perfectly fine with it but no i don't know going back to your question were there certain things that, what was your question would, would i watch let them watch anything no i was um mm. kind of very careful about what they watched because i think it can have an impact on people i think it can have an impact on people and i didn't want it to have a negative impact and i wanted them to come to those films later in life when they were more prepared for it But where do you see the line there? Because when I think back to my experiences as a very young, soon-to-be horror fan, obviously I had the same experiences as you're talking about there with Doctor Who. It's just back in the early 70s. But there's one thing that sticks in my mind, Hmm. not from Doctor Who, which is, I mean, I must have been about five or six. Maybe this might have been about 1970 or so. And... I can't remember the details, but at some point I managed to get hold of or see a magazine that had a whole bunch of stills from Hammer Horror films or British horror films at the time. And there might have been some Amicus and Trigon stuff in there as well. But it was all what was then contemporary British horror. And it was makeup effects of monsters primarily. Hmm. And I remember being five or six and seeing this and just being absolutely terrified. I mean, really 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 scared by this to the extent where i still remember all these years later 50 odd years on lying there in the dark all night just seeing 
things in the shadows and the, every pattern in the wallpaper looked sinister and I was convinced there were monsters behind the curtains and everything around me was threatening and I could just imagine those things that I'd seen in those pictures around. And then I had my nightmares, I got over it and my reaction to it was to suddenly develop a real appetite for horror and I just absolutely fucking loved it from that stage and yeah i had you know like 24 hours of being really scared and it was almost like it hooked me in you emerged from your chrysalis of innocence and you became the butterfly <laughs> that is uh, there to spread horror and terror amongst the masses the death's head moth yeah <laughs> thinking back 9 11 i didn't let my children see that on tv hmm. i can remember thinking i'm not going to let them watch this and they were only three but I just thought, I'm not going to let them see these images on TV. That's a kind of a real-life horror. Yeah. But ultimately, Scott, I mean, I've known you since about that time. Yeah. And I looked at you and I thought, this is a man who was exposed to horror at a young age. <laughs> Look what he's become. Do I want my children to see these things? <laughs> God, no! <laughs> Fair point. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't argue with that, Paul. I can't argue with that. Yeah. You've just undermined the whole episode, Dorwood. <laughs> this is what horror does to people. This is indeed a great bookend to close out the episode in. The reasons for uh, advocating censorship and advocating that uh, horror is a bad thing, look at Scott. <laughs> well, to wrap up, the question I posed at the start of the show is, is horror dangerous? The answer is Scott Dorwood. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this episode, no matter how scary it got. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage, and we have a number of new backers to thank by name. Yep, starting off with a thanks to Kyle Mills. And also thank you very much to Martin Blake. And thank you to Marie Norris. Now, if we mispronounce anybody's names, then please do get in touch. Let us know, and we'll give it a second shot on a future episode. But I'm going to say a thanks to Jens Schoheim. And thank you very much to Craig Pay. And thank you to Simon Hatch. And thanks to Devon McGinty. Ah, here's a name I recognise. Thank you very much to Nicholas Corkigan. And thank you finally to Yves La Rochelle. Well, if you've enjoyed our discussion of horror, you may want to uh, let other people know about it. I mean, you may not, but uh, if you do, <laughs> you can get on the social medias and promote the episode, share our posts, or talk about it wherever you like to talk about things on the internet. Also, if you would like to leave us a review on iTunes, that would be greatly appreciated. Or anywhere you get your podcast from. Shouting it from the rooftops at 3am also counts as a good review as far as I'm concerned. Your neighbours might disagree with that. Ah, what the hell. Okay, well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com mm.